Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all today. You can uh, go ahead and open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, It's a blessing to gather this morning as the family of God as always. And last Sunday, we were encouraged to not neglect meeting together as we're doing right now, uh, which is a win for all of us if you've uh, come to church today. And um, let's see, Jesus did not come back last week. Uh, But we are one week closer to his return. And it also means that we have still been given the opportunity then today for the gospel to go out and for people to come into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And um, blessed to interact with some people coming in this morning, some who came back to church who were watching online, some who last week came into the kingdom of God by receiving Jesus by faith, and uh, it's a wonderful work that's happening here in this church. And this morning, as we were setting up, we added 40 more chairs to the sanctuary, and uh, yeah, but it looks like they all got filled up. So we, uh, we had a little staff meeting this week, and just to throw it out there, because I don't, I don't mind sharing, it's kind of fun. We talked about actually turning the stage, because it's so big. Like, I don't need this much room up here. Um, we talked about flipping the sanctuary and having this be balcony seating and then preach from that side of the sanctuary. So we'll see. Uh, or we'll add a third service, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, um, but I am eager for what God is going to do in our midst this morning because I have a lot of confidence in our God. And I know that when we open his word and when we open our hearts, the Holy Spirit does the work that he does best. And uh, before we get into Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, uh, which you can have open if you haven't already, I want to share with you a promise from scripture that is a 100% guarantee. And it comes from James chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. And it says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We love that scripture. But consider what comes immediately after. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And I want to start with that scripture today because it captures something that we need to first understand before we go on with reading what we have before us in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's this, is that there is no exaltation without humility. There is no joy without gloom. There is no laughter without mourning. Therefore, weep, mourn, be wretched, make up your mind. Purify your heart and cleanse your hands. See, we love the part that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But this is what it looks like to draw near to the Lord. Here's what the scripture from James is seeking to get across to us, is that we need to recognize and admit that we are sinners and that we desperately need a savior. Jesus is the only savior for sinners. There is salvation in no one else. The Bible says that God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 
And so here's the clear message today. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, but recognize that in order for that to happen, your sins need to be dealt with and only Jesus can do that. Let me say one more thing, which is that you're not going to understand that the gospel is good news unless you've become aware of the bad news. You will not sense the beauty and the strength of God's great love until you've been warned of the terrible dangers of sin, death, and the devil. And so today, as we come into Hebrews chapter 10, we come into a message that has two parts. The first part is a strong warning. It's the bad news. The second part is a strong encouragement. It's the good news. And if we'll hear both the warning and heed the encouragement today, then God is going to be glorified in our midst. As we respond to God today, both to his love and also with fear of his greatness. See, the desire for this morning is that we would all come to know the great gift of salvation that is freely given in Jesus Christ. And so with that this morning, with your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 10, let's read the first part, the warning that starts in verse 26. Get ready. It's strong. It says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a savior. And I pray that today as we hear your powerful and true word, God, that we would be cut to the heart. We thank you that your word is like a sharp sword that has two edges. It can both comfort the afflicted and it can afflict the comfortable. And today, God, I pray that every single one of us would draw near to God, that we'd humble ourselves, confess that we are sinners, and that we need Jesus, and that you would draw near to us by that confession. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I've been a believer in Jesus Christ for 18 years. And I've read this scripture that I just read many times, and when I first read it, it scared the hell out of me, (laughs) quite literally. And as I read it today, it still makes me tremble, because this scripture is a very strong warning, and it's meant to be. And so let's read the first two verses and see again this gut-punching statement that the writer of Hebrews makes. He says, 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And that word for at the beginning of the verse connects us back to those three lettuce statements that we saw last week, which is that if you've been in the habit of gathering here uh, for church, then you know what I'm saying. We've, we've spent the last several months looking at the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been continually called as believers to move onward and upward in our calling in the Lord. We've been warned even three other times before this warning today. There's five warnings in the book of Hebrews. We've already seen three of them. We've been warned not to drift. We've been warned not to neglect. We've been warned not to come up short of the salvation that's given to us in Jesus Christ. It's been all about Jesus. And, and if this is your first time here with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Keep listening. But for those who have been here each week as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, you know what I'm talking about. It's as if there's nothing more that the writer of Hebrews can say to us or to his original audience that would convince us of the greatness and the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. He really is the greater and the more perfect sacrifice. He is better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua. He has a better priesthood with a better covenant. He is better in every sense of what that word means. And so in light of all of these truths that we've been hearing about Jesus, and, and especially this access that we now have to God through the blood of Christ, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of that truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, this is a scripture that if it's pulled out from its context, it can really do a number on you. I've said this before, and it's certainly true for this verse, is that the devil can preach a better sermon on this text, but he would be lying to you the whole way through it. At first look, we see those words that say, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And it gives us very good reason to pause and to consider our own obedience to the Lord. So I have a few questions that I want to ask you this morning, and I want full participation, please. Raise your hands if you have received the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. So good. Put your hand down. Wonderful. Raise your hands if you have sinned after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Okay. If you raise your hand to the first question, but you didn't raise your hand to the second question, then you're lying and you just sinned. And so you can put your hand up. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. See, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Then what is the writer of Hebrews saying here in verse 26? He's saying that if I deliberately sin after receiving salvation, I will not be forgiven 
because there's no sacrifice for sin after a person has received salvation. No, that is not what he's saying. He will clarify even what he means in verse 29. And besides, John goes on to say in his epistle that we are lying if we say we have no sin. Not only are we lying, but we're calling God a liar. And that is why a remedy for sin is given immediately after in the next verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let me tell you from personal experience, in the 18 years that I have been following Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I have sinned many times. I have sinned willfully and deliberately, even after coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I even sinned on several occasions last week. And can't we say that most all of our sin is willful sin? Because we choose to sin, don't we? In my sin, though, I know that I can always come to God for forgiveness. I can confess my sin to him, and he has always been faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, both the sins that I do intentionally and the sins that I do unintentionally. In fact, I know from God's word that Jesus' blood has cleansed me from all sin. My past, present, and even my future sin has been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God. I have been justified and I have been sanctified, but that does not make me sinless. To be sinless is a promise that awaits me in heaven for when I am glorified. To say that I'm sinless is to deceive myself and to call God a liar. But I will say this, though. In the life of faith that I live, I know that I will not be sinless. But I know that it is both God's desire and my desire that I would sin less. I won't be sinless. But I know what God wants for me. And I know what I want for myself is that I would sin less as I know Jesus more and more. So while sinless perfection is not in this life, but only in the life to come, by the sanctifying power of the blood of Jesus, we have a direction in life. And it is to look more and more like Jesus as we walk by faith in his unending grace for us, to set our gaze upon Jesus and his heavenly kingdom and to go that way. You see, we can't go on sinning deliberately in an ongoing manner because we have an upward calling in Jesus Christ. Let me quote the Apostle John one more time. By the way, 1 John is a wonderful book. We, we went through that book um, early on in, in the church, and many people came to faith in Jesus during that time. But First uh, John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You know, God has allowed it for you as a child of God for you to walk in victory. You don't have to choose sin. You can walk in the righteousness that is yours in Jesus Christ. You don't have to sin. However, he says, but if anyone does sin, 
which we know inevitably we, we will at some point or another, we will sin. We don't have to, but we, we will. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. All right, well then, who is the writer talking about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26? Well, it says that he's speaking about people who have a full knowledge of the truth. These are people who've had a certain level of experience. That word knowledge is experiential knowledge with the gospel. They, they understand what the gospel can do in a person's life. Perhaps this is someone who has been in and among a community of believers. They know the message of the gospel. They've even maybe thought seriously about the claims of Jesus Christ and the promises of his new covenants. And let me do this. I also want to bring in parts from a prior warning that was given in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. In some way, these people have tasted the heavenly gift. In some way, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. In some way, they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. In, in some significant ways, they have received the knowledge of of the truth. But then, if they fall away, if they go on into a lifestyle of sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, they come to a point where they would say, I have no need, I have no want of Jesus, I reject him, he's not my savior. Well, then what happens? Hebrews chapter 6 says, it is impossible to restore such a one to repentance. Hebrews 10 says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See, what is left for a person who sins deliberately in this way? Well, after a person leaves Jesus behind in the gift of salvation that he so freely gives, and, and it really matters very little where they go afterward, because the Bible is very clear that if you reject Jesus, you reject life. And if you reject Jesus, you reject the promise of what happens after you die, the promise of eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And so if you continue to reject Jesus until your final breath, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 8 says, like a crop of thorns and thistles, its end is to be burned. Hebrews 10.27 says, there is a fearful expectation of, ju of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Look, if this is concerning to you, good. It probably means that you're not in this terrible state. But if this is something that, as I'm saying these words, you have contempt toward them, you think that I'm a real big idiot and that this whole salvation thing is a joke and you have no desire to be here, you have no desire to be in any real relationship with Jesus Christ, this is your warning. You know the way of salvation because I just told you. You're welcome. But there's a good chance that you've heard all of this before, haven't you? Now, if, if this is all stuff you're hearing for the first time, again, welcome. Keep listening. But if this is all 
things that you've heard throughout your life, but you don't want it. You don't need it. And you keep on rejecting Jesus. And you would reject Jesus because you're proud, because you want to keep living life the way that you want to live. And if you despise and you reject this truth and you go on deliberately, willfully sinning with no regard, no regard for Jesus, no, no sense of, I need to walk in the light as he is in the light, this is your warning today, friends. There is a judgment coming. You can expect it. God will consume his adversaries. To make sure that you are not an adversary of God, come to the advocate of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He died to make sinners righteous in God's sight. Confess your sins to God. Tell him that you need him to cleanse you of your sins, most prominently your sin of rejection, your sin of pride. Humble yourself in the sight of God. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to him, draw near to you. But if you keep refusing the call of God to draw near to him, you are going to continue to resist him and his will for your life. Then at this moment, you can have the expectation of the fiery judgment of hell. A fury of fire will consume the adversaries. An eternal destruction is the fearful judgment that is coming upon all who refuse to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you've been refusing the call of God for you to come to Jesus and you continue to refuse him, a fiery judgment awaits those who reject the gospel. Well, Mr. Pastor, I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. See, God doesn't need to send people to hell. You send yourself to hell by your own sin. God has provided a sure way of escape. It is through the Son of God who died on a cross to destroy sin, death, and the devil, and he will soon be sending the devil to hell. But sadly, there are many who are deceived by sin and the devil, and when they die, they will perish forever in hell. You know, to make light of sin in hell is to make light of the cross. Why would Jesus die on the cross to save us if he wasn't saving us from something very serious? But listen, hell was not made for those who were made in the image of God. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Well, Mr. Preacher, I can't believe in a God who would kill his own son on a cross. Well, then, my friend, bear your own judgments, because I know of no other way for sins to be judged than by the cross. Well, there is a sense where your sin will either be judged by the cross or you will bear your sins yourself. Well, I don't believe I'm a sinner, though. 
Well, God says in this book that you are, and if you're saying that you're not, you're calling God a liar, and what can be worse? But I don't believe in the Bible, and I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I don't need your Jesus. I don't think... I think this whole gospel message is just for weak and naive religious people who are scared about what's going to happen after you die. Let me just say this. I sure hope that all of that was a hypothetical dialogue and that no one here would say that or would be thinking that. But if you have been saying that and if you have been thinking that, then today you are being warned And today you can repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. Verse 28 says, Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we've been comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. And we've seen that clearly Jesus with his new covenant has better promises. Uh, It's a covenant that he graciously gives life to those who ask. And we saw that in the law, what the law did, it only revealed that we are sinners in need of a savior. But the law could not save anyone. What the law would do is it would show that you are guilty. And, And you can see all throughout the Old Testament, you could read about the severity of God toward those who would set aside the law of Moses. And it only took two or three witnesses to put a person to death in the law, which had no mercy. But God has come with the covenant of grace and mercy. He has come with a much better way for us to draw near to God. The law brought death, but Jesus brings life. In verse 29, we're asked a question that has an obvious answer. It says, how much worse punishment do you think? And this should be a question that you can answer for yourself. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. And so this lesser to greater argument is given here in verse 29. If disobeying the old covenant deserved just punishment from God and mercy was not shown under the law at all, How much worse will one be if they disobey this new covenant and reject and despise such an incredible mercy that's offered through Jesus Christ? The answer is obvious. It's not a good situation to be in at all. Verse 29 also serves to clarify who the writer was talking about in verse 26. This isn't just a person who backslides into sin. This isn't talking about somebody who, who, who made some grave mistake as they were walking with Jesus and they, they don't know whether God can forgive them or not. This is talking about a person who has gone on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. But this is someone who trampled underfoot the Son of God. This is someone who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This is a person who has outraged the spirit of grace. These are serious sins. These are sins that demonstrate that there is a deliberate rejection of Jesus Christ. And not just rejection, but contempt, trampling, profaning, outraging. This is someone who would turn against Jesus and say, he's not my savior. This is a person 
who would turn from Jesus and the salvation he offers, turn to anything other than that which would just be lesser things to serve as their gods. For the Hebrew, it would have been going back to the law and its sacrifices, to go back to bloods and bulls and goats to, to cleanse them from their sins, saying, you know, this whole blood of Jesus uh, is just like any other blood, even less than the blood of bulls and goats. You know, to profane the blood of the covenant is to say, Jesus' blood is nothing unique, nothing special. It's just another person's blood, or, or worse, it's the blood of an evil man. It is to say that there's nothing great about Jesus. I don't need him, and I don't want him. What kind of punishment do you think that will deserve? To trample the Son of God underfoot, to put Jesus under your feet with contempt, to profane, to, to speak blasphemous words concerning the blood of Jesus, to outrage the Spirit of grace. God offers you this gift, and you just throw it right back in his face. We're told what sort of punishment this kind of rejection of God's mercy deserves in verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So the writer was aware and he knew that his readers were aware that God is just. And nothing that God does is ever sinful, spiteful, or vindictive. God cannot tempt with evil, and he is not tempted with evil. And two scriptures from Deuteronomy 32, they are cited here to show that God is just, that he will punish sinners who have not been forgiven by the mercy of Jesus' blood. Both vengeance and judgment belong to the Lord because he is the only one who can deal it out rightly. God's the only one who's just. That's why he says, vengeance is mine. I will judge my people. And the Lord knows those who are his. And he will be the judge. And look, God wants to show mercy. By the looks on your faces, you want God to show mercy. Right? Let me tell you something. A lot of times we call out for God to be just. We want God to be fair. And we'll even say, you know, things about people being sent to hell, we're like, that's not, but that's not fair. Just, listen, you don't want God to be fair. You don't want to call out for God's justice. You want God to be merciful. You don't want God to be fair to you. You want him to be merciful to you. See, but God's mercy must be administered with justice because mercy and justice both belong to God and they cannot contradict because God's character cannot, and attributes can never contradict. Therefore, God's justice was met with mercy when Jesus died on a cross as our propitiation. Jesus bore the wrath and the justice of, of God that my sin deserves at the cross. That's why God can now show me mercy when I look to Jesus at the cross. It's why the Father gave up his son to die so that our sins would be paid for completely. God's wrath and justice towards sin was completely satisfied by Jesus' blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. 
But if you do not accept Jesus, that he justly paid for your sins when he died on a cross, you, you would consider the, the death and the blood of Jesus as having nothing of value. It'd be as if you walked up to the cross and you saw the Son of God crucified with a crown of thorns in his head, nails in his hands and in his feet, struck in the side with a spear, and you look, and he's dead on the cross, and you would say, hmm, it's all right. God, can you do something better? I mean, this is so cool, but like, can you do some miracle? Can you do something to really get my attention? To really wow me, you know, like, like write my name in the sky. Do some crazy miracle that would just make me go, wow, listen, miracles never draw people to God. You know what draws people to God? Jesus being lifted up on the cross. To look at the cross and to say, eh, do something better, God. God has no other way to show you that he loves you than by what he did in crucifying his son so that you can live. There's no other way for God to demonstrate his love towards sinners. So to reject that, I don't think you really want what comes after that. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Sins will be judged no matter what, either at the cross or the great white throne. If your sins were judged at the cross by believing in Jesus, you will go to heaven. If your sins are to be judged at the great white throne, you will go to hell. So eternal life and eternal death stands before us today. And without warning expressed, I completely agree with what is said in the next verse, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But oh, how wonderful of a thing it is to fall into the hands of a loving Savior. God is waiting to be loved by you. And perfect love casts out fear. And anyone and everyone can come into the loving arms of God today to be his children but if you don't come to Jesus, and if you don't come through Jesus, and you refuse him who is speaking today, friend, if the love of God is not in you, because you love yourself, and you love your sin, and you love the world, and you don't want Jesus, then I tell you today, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I believe that this is the day for some to receive the gift of salvation, to stop running from God to surrender and say, Jesus, save me. I need you. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that today, to receive Jesus as your Savior in just a moment. But first, by the showing of hands here today of those who have come to the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, I think much better things concerning you, things concerning salvation. You know, it's interesting to preach a message like that to this room where I understand that it might not apply to very many of you. But if it did apply to you, today's the day for you to come. And the rest of this text applies to you, and I'm only going to give about eight minutes to encourage the saints here to continue on with Jesus. You ready? Let's read the encouragement. 
We're going up from here. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the writer of Hebrews here is speaking to Christians, Christians who have endured a hard struggle with suffering for their faith in Jesus. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You're going to suffer. See, one of, the, one of the key sufferings in the Christian life is to crucify yourself daily. Anyone who gave you a bill of goods telling you that Christianity was easy, it's wonderful, but I just don't know that I'd use the words easy. In fact, I think a hard struggle in a lot of ways defines the life of a disciple. What happened in the former days for those early Hebrew Christians that they would be publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. People would say publicly things about them that were not true. Ever had that happen to you, Christian? For them, it was either religious or political persecutors who would afflict these believers, often with words, sometimes with actions. And if it didn't happen to them directly, then they were at least partners with those who were so treated in this way. Because as Christians, when one suffers, we all suffer. We're a body. But good things happen to the believers as well, right? It's, I'm not saying that, that persecution is even necessarily a bad thing, Christians. It refines us. It shapes us. It makes us more like Jesus. Jesus said, if they hated me first, they will hate you. Don't be surprised, Christian, when you come into the fire trial as though something strange is happening to you, right? But they did great things. They visited those in prison, presumably those who had been in prison for their faith. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Often the persecution of the early church, the way that persecution happened, and I think in our times, I think this would probably be how persecution happens for many believers, is it becomes an economic persecution. It becomes a housing persecution. But they knew where their inheritance was. They knew that they were but sojourners in this land, and that they had treasures from in heaven awaiting them because of the love and the good deeds that they were doing, they were storing up treasures in heaven and they knew that that would be soon, very soon. They believed that they had a heavenly calling. There was an onward and upward pursuit of their lives. They had a better possession. They had an abiding one. And he says, the writer, he says, recall these things to your mind, beloved. Remember them and hold fast to them and keep on going. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to discouraged Christians. Christians at one time who were walking strong with the Lord, but they've been challenged in some way to keep going on in their faith with Jesus, and they're being tempted to turn away from Jesus. And, and, and he's saying to them, be warned not to do that, because a faith that does not finish is faulty from the first. Keep going. Be encouraged. 
See, the warning is meant to afflict the comfortable. And the encouragement is meant to comfort the afflicted. What do you need today? What's God stirring in you today? Well, let's continue. Verse 35 to 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is a call to continue, church. A message to hold fast to what we have believed about Jesus. When the world, when your flesh, and when the devil presses against you to try to cause you to despair and to be discouraged and just to throw it all away, keep on continuing with Jesus. Do not throw away the riches you have in Christ. It's true, there's great reward in the end. There's reward now, but there's certainly so much reward in the end. There's eternal riches in heaven for those who will endure. And this life is but a vapor, but sometimes we feel like we're not going to make it to the end. And that's why he says here, for you have need of endurance. If you're a Christian here today, if you put your hand up earlier, that's a word for you. That's a word for me. For you have need of endurance. In the grace and the mercy of God, let's keep going toward the finish. Run your race with endurance. There's great reward for those who finish well. You're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Keep on running the race of faith, and I pray that you will endure. Pray for me that I will endure. He who promises faithful, continue to be faithful to his promises. God will keep you in his love. Keep yourself in the love of God. God will make us endure so that when we have done his will, we may receive what he has promised, which is eternity with him in his kingdom. I'm confident of that. Are you sure of that, beloved? You have need to endure. Because verse 37 to 39 says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come. Listen. Church, for yet a little while, just a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Is that you? We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. I do not want the warning. I want the encouragement. What do you want today? What did you need to hear today? Did you need to hear the encouragement? Or did you need to hear the warning? 
Well, I guarantee that I think every single one of us needed to hear both. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for every single soul that is in this room right now. Thank you for that promise that is simple and true, an absolute guarantee that says, if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Lord, for those who have the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have been saved by the confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that as they would say, I have need for endurance, that God, you would fill them with the Holy Spirit. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, come upon your church. Give us a fresh wind in our sails. Blow through this place and give us power because we know that as Christians, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot endure in our flesh. Having begun by the Spirit, are we now being perfected by the flesh? By no means. Lord, if we've started in the Spirit, you say you will be faithful to take us to the very end. Lord, thank you that as we walk with you by faith, you walk with us by grace. But for anyone here today who doesn't know you in this way, and up until this point this morning, they've been refusing to turn to Jesus. They have been rejecting the Son of God and the love that he offers. I pray that today is the day that they repent and they turn to you and they see your smiling face. And if that's you and you know it's you, and you want to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you want to have his eternal kingdom as your possession, just raise your hand right where you are. Today you want to come home. You've been wandering. I see you right back there, sir. You've been wandering away from the faith. You don't know that you've really had a saving faith. I see you right there. Wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. Anyone else here this morning? You ready to come home? You ready to be with Jesus? You want his love? You want his kingdom? Raise your hand. Okay, I saw two hands go up, and so let's pray. If you raise your hand right now, pray this prayer with me very simply. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you, and he will keep you to the end. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I thank you that you are the only way for salvation. And you accomplished that salvation when you died on the cross for me. I believe that you died and that you rose again and you ascended to heaven. And I believe that when I die, I will go to be with you where you are. You've prepared a place for me. So Jesus, right now, I've prepared a place for you in my heart. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, let's stand up together. We're going to close in a final song of worship, a song that should be sung from your heart in spirit and in truth, that Jesus is your firm foundation. And so let's sing together.